Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. My name is Dr. Eleanor O'Leary and I am a lecturer in media and communications at the Institute of Technology in Carlo. Um, I'm here today to talk about my book, Youth and Popular Culture in 1950s Ireland, published by Bloomsbury in 2018. And I'm very lucky to discuss the book with me today. I have Dr. Marcus Free and Marcus is a lecturer in media and communication studies in Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. And he also published a review of the book in the Journal of European Popular Culture in spring of 2020. So, you know, has a good um, knowledge of the book and, um, you know, will hopefully be able to um, guide some of the discussion today around some of the points that might be of interest um, to the audience uh, for the podcast. So, um, Marcus, I might say good morning to you um, and um, ask that you maybe start the discussion around some of the things that came up when you were reviewing the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, thanks, uh, Eleanor, and good morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, discuss the book with you. Uh, I, I think this is a, a really fascinating book. Uh, the, the 1950s in Ireland is uh, often seen as a, a period of economic stagnation, uh, suffering from mass emigration, um, and 1959 is typically seen as the year uh, when Ireland began to, to modernize. I think one of the things that the book does is to challenge the idea that uh, this was, the 50s was also a period of, of cultural stagnation, and so I, I think you've um, addressed a, a, a neglected field, really, the, uh, the experiences of, of young people in carving out uh, spaces uh, in which uh, in individual and collective identities are negotiated. So I wonder perhaps if we could uh, start off with a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, uh, where did your uh, idea for the, the, the research originated? So how did you uh, become interested in this particular field? And then uh, secondly, as a follow-on from that, if you could talk about um, how you decided on the path through your research. So which, which, which kinds of uh, source you were going to, uh, to try and, and use and, and uh, decisions you made about um, uh, routes that you, you, you didn't take in particular, uh, one of the avenues might've been oral history, but you decided not to, to pursue that. So if you could perhaps address those, those two questions, first of all. Yeah, sure. Um... I think I developed kind of an interest in youth culture, you know, in my early studies during my master's. And then um, at the start, actually, I was really interested in, in the 1970s and looking at the 1970s. And then I had started to think about looking from the, from the 50s until 1979 and the Pope's visit um, at youth culture in Ireland. But the more I started to look at that kind of 20 year period 
um, or 30 year period, it made me realize that very little work had been done on the 1950s. And there was really, again, as you said, this cutoff point of 1959 and this assumption that modern Ireland sort of began um, or, you know, was awakened at that point. Um, and I think that sort of led me back to the 1950s um, and what students or kind of young people, what their motivations were in that time period, what they, how they were connected to international youth culture. And I decided then to really focus on the 1950s in particular um, from there on out. One of the questions that sort of hung over the research then was whether to interview people about their experiences of being a teenager in the 1950s or to rely on archival um, and other types of material through um, repositories, public repositories and newspapers, etc. So for me, there was sort of a tension between those two. One, because if you go down the oral history route, it's a very particular type of research and you're dealing with people's memories of their youth. And I think most of us, when we reflect on our younger years later in our life, present or you know, edit our experiences based on what we know now as, as, as older adults. And we would describe them quite differently, I think, than if I asked you at 16, what it was like being that age. So you have to kind of negotiate that then in your reading of how people um, remember something because that is a whole other um, sort of filter through which that information goes through before it comes to you. And mm -hmm. I decided based on that, that I wasn't going to try and mix oral histories with archival material. I felt the oral histories would maybe impinge on or guide more my research than of the um, archival material. So I decided I wouldn't do oral histories. I wouldn't interview people about their um, teenage years. And instead I would rely on what was available through the archives and what was available through um, the kind of growing digitization of newspapers and other journals and materials from the time period. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a very interesting point. I suppose one of the, just on oral history, I suppose one of the dangers is that um, uh, if people are talking retrospectively, uh, there might, might be a tendency to construct a kind of uh, narrative of, of progression uh, towards uh, where they are now. And so uh, the, the, uh, the, the lived experience is framed by, by uh, uh, a sense of, of uh, identity in, 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 in the present. Um, just on your sources, uh, could so you talk about using archival resources. So they, they uh, took a variety of forms. Uh, you used material from the, um, the Department of Education archives, and in addition to uh, digitized newspapers, which of course really have only recently become available to historians. And I wonder if you could talk about uh, the challenges of using those uh, different different uh, uh, sources in addition to the the the, uh, the opportunities and then how you made use of them. Yeah, I mean, there were sort of pluses and minuses when I decided to go down the archival route. Um, one of those was that there was quite a lot of newspapers that had been digitized and that opened up um, the Irish Newspaper Archive online and uh, the Irish uh, Times online, they had been digitized in a way that you could search them quite easily. And that 
I think, you know, really parts of my PhD wouldn't have been possible to do 20 years beforehand or it would have taken me about 30 years to do it uh, when I started doing that research on the newspapers as part of my PhD um, because uh, you would have had to read every single newspaper in order to find the one article on teenagers. Um, mm. That would have been time-wise very restrictive. So what mm. I decided to do was to use the digitization to be able to search for key terms like, te like even the word teenager and whether that was actually used in the 1950s is one of the first things I searched because that was a relatively new word. You often see it even um, sort of truncated or people call it, you know, teenagism or teen dash age rather than it being one word. So um, the use of the word teenage evolved over the decade how commonly it was used and the way that it was used. I found, for example, in a lot of official government papers, they tended to use the word juvenile or adolescent, whereas in popular culture and newspapers and magazines and other publications, they tended to use the word teenage. So that was quite useful to have the digitization of the newspapers because I could mm. put in words like teen, teenage, juvenile, um, adolescent, and then see what I got out of the results and I was able to then interpret that in different ways based on how official and unofficial um, culture and popular culture used that terminology and the kind of meanings attached to different uses of those words. The other thing that um, I had to negotiate then was that a lot of the material was spread across quite a few different really minor archives in different organizations. So I think I looked at the ESB archives, I looked at the IFA's archives, I looked at you know, youth organization archives, I looked at um, Eason's archives, which are you know, in their main offices and they're not really set up for researchers to come in there at the moment. So it was really like sitting in a cupboard and um, having a load of boxes that I had to go through with very little direction, except this was a 1950s Could I just box. ask you yeah, just about that last yeah. one there, Eleanor? Uh, I, I, was, I was surprised to hear Eason Archive. So Eason is, um, this is a large uh, bookshop in central Dublin. I think they're also, yeah. um, they have branches now around yeah. the country, but uh, uh, why Eason? What was the significance there? The reason I was looking at Eason's archive, so yeah, they're a book, they're a distributor really, um, and also have bookstores. So in the 1950s, Eason's would have been one of the biggest distributors of um, magazines and newspapers, books and popular culture, sort of in the wider sense, they might have sold other types of materials as well, like um, you know, sort of pulp fiction and that kind of thing. So they had quite a wide distribution. They also owned all of the uh, stands in train stations. They, right. so a lot of people would have picked up their, their um, reading materials as they traveled around to work, to and from work or, you know, in their local bus station. So they had these stands in, in train stations and in other transport hubs where mm -hmm. they would have sold newspapers and books and magazines. So it was a way to really look at how popular culture material read, you know, reading for, for mm -hmm. the purposes of, of reading was, was circulating in the country. And because they were really the biggest distributor and also retailer of printed popular culture in that decade, their archives are really useful to see what kinds of 
um, magazines and newspapers were available to young people? Did they have specialized categories of, of uh, popular culture material that they um, circulated to particular areas and that kind of thing? What was the really availability of it? And actually at the back of the book, because I thought it might be useful to other researchers as well. And I really had to myself to some degree um, find that material and put it together. So it wasn't in a kind of archive that was easily accessible. I actually made that some of the lists of some of the um, material that was available to be bought through ESOMs and that they circulated. So one of the appendix in the book is an order sheet for magazines published in December 1956. And it kind of gives mm -hmm. a flavor of or a sense of the wide scale availability of, of, of the types of popular culture in that time period. See. Yes, I'm just looking at it here now, actually. Uh, order sheet for magazines published during December 1956. That's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And uh, that's really interesting what you're saying there about the, um, the digitized newspaper archives. So you can actually see uh, the, the, um, uh, the term teen or, or teenager coming into progressive use then over the course of the 1950s. Um, yeah, and, and it, was uh, also, it was also the context in which it was being used. So it wasn't just like how many times it was being used. It was also what context was the word teenage or teenager mm. or teenism um, mm. being used in within. So it kind of gave more of a, a context as well to how people were perceiving teenagers and teenage culture. Yeah, and uh, I, I one thing that uh, stuck out in, in, in my notes was, a, was, I think it was a letter to the Irish Times uh, where uh, a, a teenage letter writer uh, said, am I, why am I recalling this? Am I recalling this correctly? That we're, we're not crazy mixed up kids. Uh, this was uh, from 1958. So I thought it was a really interesting example of um, uh, the, 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 the way in which you, you kind of detect this, this, this voice kind of coming through, um, uh, if albeit, uh, intermittently and and uh, in, indirectly um, through through publications, that seems to be one of one of the themes uh, in, in in the uh, in the book. It's, it's finding traces um, of uh, uh, teenage um, uh, voices, uh, a, a, a expression. Uh, um, it was one. It was one of through commentaries. Yeah, and it was one of the challenges because um, you know, I suppose you're trying to balance out again I didn't want to overly focus on minor subcultures um, mm -hmm. I didn't feel like that would be representational of like everyone's experience I was trying to represent the teenage experience in the widest sense or you know the experience of youth in Ireland in the widest sense in the book and not mm -hmm. focus too much on like you know if they were only five teddy boys in in Limerick in the 1950s I didn't want to make that you know elevate that beyond what it, the actual experience of that was um, and I think there was a danger always of taking these snippets and, and placing too much emphasis on them. It's one of the reasons that at the start of the book, I have a chapter on education and opportunity and a chapter on employment, because I wanted to give some context to the kind of overall experience of being a teenager in that time period. It also allowed me to contextualize some of those other pieces that I got from the archives. So how likely was it that somebody could afford to engage in popular culture, that they could afford mm. to go to the cinema regularly or buy the most recent music or clothes 
based on what they were earning and what their opportunities were um, based on their age, you know, the kind of other factors that interact with popular culture, you know, none of these exist in their own vacuum. So mm. it was like, although popular culture was the main focus of, is the main focus of the book and the main focus of the research, mm. I, I wanted that to have, to exist within its relationships with some of the other important factors in the teens' lives, like, you know, what age they went to work and their education mm. and mm. their disposable income and, and all of those other things. Yeah, I think that's one of the real strengths of the book that you, you you're quite clear that you, you, you you're not um, you're you're avoiding uh, overly romanticizing uh, the kind of uh, autonomy that teenagers experience at the time, and so the um, the economic and the educational context is very clearly set out. I was really struck by some of the statistics actually just on that. Uh, 1951, only 28 percent of 14 to the 14 to 19 age group were students. Um, and at the beginning of the 50s, 65% uh, of young men in agricultural employment. Um, that did decline, uh, yeah. but uh, th those are really quite in indicative of the kind of uh, lack of uh, opportunities, um, uh, educational opportunities, employment opportunities that faced teenagers at the time. Uh, a lot of uh, very high percentage of young women involved in um, uh, uh, domestic service as well, I think was another uh, statistic. Yeah, there. And, and interestingly, there were two areas that, that both declined really in the decade, mm. um, that and uh, the sort of delivery boys um, mm. and the kind of youths that would have, you know, been on their bicycles cycling around and um, the messenger boys cycling around delivering mm. messages. Uh, partially because of automation and, and the telephone and, and better, um, cheaper ways to, to do that, that profession died out. But I think there was quite a lot of change in that decade in terms of how people thought about education, valued education, realized that education was a way for uh, young people working in, in areas that were really quite restrictive, that they didn't really have a future in, that there was no way for them to progress in education became a focus for uh people from parts of society that realized the kind of trap the poverty trap that they were in and um then i mean interestingly you know teenage girls are one of the groups that took up education in the 1950s more and more as the decade went on uh realizing that they could access better opportunities that way and also, um, you know, young men working in as, as farm laborers, lots of them decided to do courses at night or, you know, take up apprenticeships um, alongside their work so that they would create new opportunities for themselves and kind of get out of the, the really miserable existence that many of them had. Otherwise, I mean, there's a still a huge percentage of young people just finishing primary school and then they're in full-time work by the time they're 14, which, you know, is kind of unimaginable in modern times. Um, but it's not that long ago that, you know, it's this generation um, were, you know, working full-time, sometimes 40 plus hours a week at 14 and 15. And uh, there was some political resistance as well uh, to calls to increase the school leaving age. 
Yeah, I mean, they were cheap labor. Um, they they were generally on about half the wage of a full adult, um, of a full male adult, I should say. Um, and, um, you know, this was, again, women, it was kind of like a spectrum of, you know, teenagers were paid the worst and then women and then and then men next. So they were kind of on about half the wage of, a, 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 of an adult um, based on their gender. And so they did provide quite cheap labor for some parts of industry. And I think that was part of the reluctance to um, move the school age to 16, even though there were quite a lot of calls from parents groups, uh, from educators and, and other concerned parties to move the education age to 16. Um, so I think, again, that was one of the things I was trying to show in the book because a lot of that had been written about the 50s was sort of through the main political figures from that time period, De Valera, obviously, and Lamas and others. And there, was, there wasn't as much social history around mm. young people and families and what their experiences of that decade were like. And there was a lot of subtlety there to be picked up on in how they actually saw their futures and where they saw their futures that wasn't really captured in that official history. And I think that was one of the things I wanted to emphasize in the book that a lot of those changes that came from 1959 onwards, they had they had links back in the decade before that, the agitation had started in the decade before that, mainly by young people, I think, and also the parents of those young people who wanted them to have um a, a more comfortable existence who you know they were looking again through popular culture at um these post booming post-war societies in america and elsewhere which seemed to be a lot more affluent and have a much higher standard of living than people in ireland did and i think that was one of the partial drivers for the desire for better standards of living in ireland yeah and, and you give just on on the um the economic aspects, I, I suppose, of the, the book before we, we uh, move on to popular culture. Uh, the, you give the example of the messenger boys um, and uh, their um, uh, demands for, uh, for, for uh, better paying conditions. That was a minor success. Yeah, they were. I mean, it was, it was one of those interesting finds was Again, I think when, when I told people I was looking at youth and popular culture in 1950s Ireland, the primary question I got asked was, was there any? Um, and, you know, the there was an assumption that it was this really, you know, that nothing happened in the 1950s of any interest. Um, and so it was it was really, it was it was valuable to find those parts where you could see those ideas that maybe continued on then into the 60s and 70s emerge in the 1950s. And some of that was certainly through like labor agitation and young people organizing themselves and supporting each other, like that example from the messenger boys in the 1950s to improve their wages and conditions. And I think that also underlines that they that they saw that, you know, they were sort of out of step with maybe peers in other places, that they were really being sort of mistreated. Um, and also that they have this desire to to better themselves. So it was kind of a combination of all those things there. But yeah, I mean, the fact that they took, you know, they were such a sort of powerless group to some degree, mm. but they saw a way to represent themselves and 
and make themselves heard, I thought was quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, um, and, and perhaps uh, uh, if you talk uh, now just about some of the, the kind of the international um, uh, examples of um, um, uh, teen orientated um, uh, popular cultural uh, texts that became available in, in Ireland in the 1950s, uh, comics, um, Hollywood teen picks, and so on. You, uh, you cite these as, as um, cultural influences that fueled the um, sense of, of, of growing sense of, of, of teenage identity, and, uh, you know, rather than you know, the more formal kind of or, or, or sort of external view of young people as adolescents or, or, or juveniles. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see again. Um, so I was looking, I suppose, in relation to young people in popular culture at the level of access that they had to the growing idea of being a teenager and what being a teenager meant. What were the sort of, uh, what was the idea internationally of what a teenager looked like, you know, how they were um you know, what they needed in terms of accessories and looks and fashion and attitudes and all those other things. A lot of that was coming through Hollywood cinema. So you see a proliferation of teen films based, they're called kind of teen picks as a subgenre, but, um, you know, they were films based around uh, teenage culture um, and, um, you know, music and, and rock and roll in the 1950s coming out of the United States. One of the reasons for that was that um, the television had arrived in America and it, it reduced the number of people going to the cinema regularly, but one of the groups still going to the cinema regularly were teenagers because they wanted to get away from their parents and they wanted to hang out together. And so they sort of occupied the cinema space in a particular way. And then Hollywood cinema sort of orientated itself towards this audience um, making a lot of teenage films in the 1950s. And in Ireland, you know, Irish people were very avid cinema goers. Television hadn't really fully arrived in Ireland at this point. We didn't have a national broadcaster. Some people were able to pick up stations from the UK, but not everybody. So there was really still a very high um, kind of attendance of cinema in Ireland. And I was surprised that, you know, some of the research in the book looks at how many of these both famous and less famous teenage films uh, were made available to audiences in Ireland and would have been seen, got licenses to be shown here. So I looked at how many of those films were available here and it looked like, you know, a very high percentage of them were uh, shown in Irish cinemas. So, you know, some of the kind of anecdotal material and, and other statistics that I put together show that maybe teenagers were going to the cinema, you know, at least once or twice a week. Um, and cinema was very affordable form of popular entertainment. So, you know, they probably would have been watching these to a very high degree and getting that idea of what a teenager in the 1950s looked like, what they did, how they spoke, kinds of hairstyles they had, the music they listened to from these Hollywood, um, from these Hollywood films. And, you know, you have the usual controversy here in Ireland around films like Rock Around the Clock, um, you know, assuming that there's going to be riots in the streets and, and the rest, which don't ever materialize. There's more talk about it than there is any um, actual riots. But the thing that I found interesting was it kind of followed a reasonably similar pattern to other places. 
Um, the idea certainly of what a teenager looked like and did was picked up on here. You also have an influence of the Teddy Boys from the UK um, and the way the Teddy Boys dressed. And I think there were probably not that many actual Teddy Boys in Ireland, but a lot of teenagers adopted the style. So they, even if they weren't like full in full regalia, they were adopting some of maybe the style of the pants or the style of the jackets, the hairstyles um, from some of those teen cultures. And of course they were affordable ways to identify yourself as being a teenager. You could go and get a haircut um, in a, a ducktail style or, you know, um, for girls in a poodle cut. And you then suddenly looked like the teenager that you saw in the movies, even if maybe your everyday existence wasn't quite as similar. Um, so I think, you know, there are some interesting ways that teenagers found ways to become that international teenager and talk about things that international teenagers were talking about and adopt that international culture that, you know, were particular to Ireland because teenagers didn't have the same level of disposable income as teenagers in other places. And they also often had to operate within social circumstances that were maybe a bit more closed. They, there weren't as many big urban centers. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you were in a rural um, area of Ireland, you just didn't have access to the same um, opportunities to sort of be a teenager um, mm -hmm. as you did in that kind of popular culture sense if you were in a big city. Some of the things that were interesting were, you know, the photographers, studios where quite a few photographs emerged of teenagers dressed up as teddy boys and um, dressed in, you know, quite modern 50s fashion in Ireland. So again, it was that assumption that there was not, that there were no kind of teenagers in the American sense of a teenager in Ireland in the 1950s. But actually when I started looking, I found quite a lot of evidence that they were very aware of that popular culture trend and that they were trying to adopt it as much as possible within the confines of disposable income and also um, access to, you know, access to the clothes and access to the fashion and um, music and, and cars and everything else that you needed to really get into the trend. And just uh, uh, as well, uh, perhaps uh, relating again the cultural to the structural and, and economic, it was a period of mass emigration from Ireland. So was there uh, a, 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 an emigrant dimension to this that uh, with um, uh, older siblings or with, with, with cousins or relatives uh, who, who moved abroad, um, was there a, a kind of uh, 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 influence on, on, on uh, younger people growing up um, coming from emigrants uh, uh, abroad so was it was it something that was those cultural influences did they come through uh, familial relations uh, in addition to um, um, exposure to films and cinemas and popular music yeah I think so um, again this is like a, you know a generation emigration here in Ireland there was a huge amount of young people left Ireland in the 1950s uh, it was probably the biggest decade really in the 20th century of mass immigration. And a lot of those people were aged between 16 and, and 25. So I think if you were a young person growing up in a rural town in Ireland or a village, um, you a good percentage of your classmates, a good percentage of your brothers and sisters and cousins 
were leaving Ireland very soon after leaving school. They were going to the UK and America primarily, although also other parts of the world. And so it was another network. It was a way of, you know, they were getting letters and other types of um, materials from uh, friends and cousins and family in America and elsewhere. That could have been sometimes sending them home patterns, bits of jewelry, clothing. Mm. Another very common thing to send home was comic books and magazines um, and, and books. So they had a very deep connection to other people mm. from their generation and their families that were living abroad. And they would have gotten some of their sense of what that experience was like from popular culture. So there's kind of a double interaction there. And mm. they're assuming that wherever they're their brother, sister, or friend is living is kind of like the movies to some degree, because that's going to be their main way of understanding what New York is like or what London is like if they haven't traveled there. But also they're getting letters home. And obviously, especially for people, for immigrants who were in the UK, they probably traveled home, you know, every few years. So they would have had some information from seeing them as well and how they dressed to, to go on. So I think it's a very important network and I think one of, I suppose, the gaps that I was trying to fill in in the research was I found in a lot of the research on emigration, you know, there was some discussion of this pull factor of having so many of their generation abroad um, within that research, but it, it sort of stopped there. It didn't really connect up to the other ways that people were experiencing abroad in Ireland. So that was one of the things I wanted to do was to kind of match up that network that was happening through emigration and the popular culture experiences to give a kind of a fuller picture of maybe how teenagers in, in Ireland in the 1950s understood the international context or understood the world outside Ireland. And I think it was through the, primarily through those two, two places, the kind of um, the immigrant experience and then also the popular culture experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, it really draws attention to, I suppose, a couple of things. Really, the the, the materiality of, of of popular culture. Uh, you know, when we we look at um, you look at people kind of trying to emulate uh, fashions. You know, through uh, uh, hairstyles, uh, through 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 clothes, uh, but and then also uh, the um, the ways in which uh, comic books are. are uh, 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 sent home uh, so that the um, uh, the, di the, the diaspora, um, the Irish, Irish 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 immigrants, become a kind of source of uh, material that uh, uh, culturally enriches uh, the uh, the lives of people who are back in who are back in Ireland. That's a very interesting interesting aspect of, of the uh, of the research. Um, uh, and then I suppose another feature of the book is the way in which um, the Catholic Church has to, uh, or, or sees uh, that it needs to adapt to uh, the changes that are, that are taking place. Um, so uh, I was struck by the, the, the photograph of the cover of your book. I was a bit con confused by initially when, when I saw it, I wasn't really sure what I was looking at. And then I only really uh, grasped the context when I read in the course of the book about uh, um, how basketball 
uh, became a, a sport of choice in, 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 in some schools. And there's a very interesting story behind that. And then I realized when I returned to the picture on the cover of the book, this is actually a picture of nuns uh, teaching uh, teenage girls how to play basketball. It's quite a bizarre uh, photograph, really. <laughs> the, 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 the nun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's a, you know echoes of sister act here somewhere oh, but, um, yeah 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 so again I think, yeah the there's again this kind of general impression i guess that ireland is very closed off from the outside world in the 1950s and so nuns playing basketball sort of maybe um makes us want to rethink that a little bit um, part of that, I think, is that the church was very good at moving when it needed to um, and realizing that, you know, maybe cracks were showing in particular places. In this case, I think that they had a real fear around and it was often called in, in, in newspaper articles, particularly ones driven, um, you know, that were sort of reporting speeches by bishops and priests, etc., called teenism, as if it was kind mm -hmm. of like a disease that you could catch <laughs> called teenism. And if you caught it, it was really, really bad for you and you became very problematic. So um, I think one of the ways that they sought to address that was to adopt some of the things that were associated with teenism and um, take control of those. So one of the things you see um, emerge in the 1950s is that they, they build a lot of youth clubs, they start a lot of youth clubs and they're trying to like take control of the leisure time of young people to make sure that they're not being overly influenced by international popular culture and teenism and other things mm -hmm. like that. So it's kind of a multi-pronged approach here. One is to set up youth clubs that are driven by Catholic values, but in order to attract young people to those clubs, they have to include things like basketball courts, um, record players, um, events and and trips around the country and, and meeting up with other teenagers so that the teenagers will actually come to these youth clubs that they've set up so mm -hmm. they have to walk this kind of line between uh wanting to control the things around teenage culture that maybe will turn teenagers more towards um international more open um ideas and then also do that in a way that's attractive to teenagers Another example of that, which, you know, also happened in the UK, and then I kind of traced it to see if it was happening here, and it was, was that their kind of fear of things like magazines and, and popular culture, like comic books, they started to produce their own versions, kind of Catholic versions of this, that had stories about St. Brendan's adventures instead of Superman's adventures. And it was a way to, again, sort of intervene in the market, get to you know make it attractive to teenagers so it's packaged like your regular comic book or it's packaged like your regular teen magazine but it's being published by catholic publishers and it has catholic themes and and values and moral stories within that and there was a real fear of what would happen because you know this is at a time when you know some of these magazines are you know when you look at them they are talking about things like extramarital affairs divorce you know, especially the ones that are focused on celebrity in Hollywood. There's sort of, again, from official, I want to, you know, emphasize the big difference here between what the public were saying about these publications and what um, the people who were censoring them and the Catholic Church and others were kind of concerned about them in it was that they were 
allowing in conversations about things like divorce, contraception, um, and, um, you know, kissing, even dating, those kinds of things that maybe they saw as a negative influence or as a, an international influence um, on young people. And they were trying to resist those to some degree. But in the process, of course, you get teenagers developing an interest in basketball and, um, and other international culture alongside that. And, and there's quite a few. I mean, I was amazed at how many, I think there was over 3,000 basketball clubs in Ireland by kind of 56, wow. 57, mainly concentrated in, in Cork and, and Kerry. But also, um, I think, I don't know if you remember this detail from the book, but um, the Harlem Globetrotters came to Dublin to play a mm, testimonial yes. match in 1956. And they you know, had 15,000 people attend the game. And it was one of the worst days of weather. Like there was torrential rain and this was in an outside um, basketball court, but they had almost 15,000 people attend the game. So it kind of shows how basketball grew. And I think, again, it was one of those interesting combinations between popular culture and international culture and then you know Irish culture um adopting parts of that so you know it's interesting would basketball have grown in the same level if there weren't those kind of films and, and other aspects to popular culture like the Harlem Globetrotters that teenagers could emulate and um and have a picture of what they were trying to to tap into through popular culture so there was an interesting dynamic there between the church, young people and, and teen culture, because they didn't, if they rejected it outright, they, they were in danger of then isolating the very group that they were trying to sort of to, to bring in. So they had to sort of negotiate that carefully. And one of the ways they did it was by um, adopting bits that they felt were kind of safe to adopt and then trying to move teenagers away from some of the things like the comic books that they felt were dangerous or damaging. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating chapter in, in the long history of church organizations, not just the Catholic church, but other church organizations uh, in the, uh, I suppose the kind of uh, uh, patronage of, 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 uh, of sporting and, and other activities. Um, uh, basketball uh, it, it chosen uh, as a, an international sport as opposed to something that was um, seen as as perhaps specifically British. Um, is, is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think that definitely played an element of, of it as well, um, given that this was only the 50s and mm. the GAA and other organizations are trying to reestablish Irish sporting mm. traditions um, and, you know, reintroduce the sort of things like handball and and you know make these different differences between what's identifiably an Irish game and that's almost always you know compared to what can be identified as a British game obviously with soccer and rugby um, and with some other sports where they really uh, sort of go put themselves in opposition to those games whereas basketball again because it's really an American game, and again, it kind of comes up in a few different places in the book, where Ireland tends to have these softer attitudes towards international culture that's American identified versus international culture that's identified with Britain for obvious reasons. Um, and that in that way, it kind of, again, becomes like a safe space where 
encouraging people to play basketball doesn't have the same connotations as getting them to play soccer or a game that sort of is identified with uh, the UK or Britain. At, at this point in time, I think that would have been more controversial, whereas in basketball mm. in that way doesn't bring about those, those political aspects to playing sport in the same way. I think you, all, you also identify something that um, I, I thought was really interesting, the, the way that uh, uh, organisations in 1950s Ireland, they, they weren't necessarily aligned as, as, as part of this kind of uh, sort of monolithic uh, conservative culture. So for instance, uh, you say that Mokrana Tuya, the, um, so uh, this was the farming organisation, Mokrana Firmers Youth Wing, uh, they were surprisingly progressive in providing educational opportunities for young people um, and criticised by the Catholic Church uh, for the lack of a religious dimension. Well, that was an interesting Yeah, interesting most, of, most of the youth clubs that were set up by the church, it was, they always had this Catholicism, Catholicism first almost approach. So it was like they were called St. Brendan's Youth Club or St. Joseph's Youth Club or St. Mary's Youth Club. And they, mm. they was a very strong influence on religious education within the youth club, even if it was still trying to introduce the basketball. Um, and then there were other like organizations like Makrinatuha, which were non-denominational in their approach and the Catholic Church obviously had specific objections to that. Um, but they were modeling themselves on, again, American primarily youth organizations and, what, and taking what they saw as beneficial from that. And they felt that given the economic challenges, the high levels of immigration, which again, there were very, there was a lot of anxiety, both in, you know, um, political um, circles, but also, you know, across society about the level of immigration and the loss of kind of a generation of young people from Ireland in that time period. So some of these approaches are about stemming emigration and trying to give young people opportunities in Ireland to better themselves or just to make life more bearable, more interesting for young people. And in that way, maybe prevent them from leaving rural areas and moving to cities either inside or outside of Ireland. So part of the reason that Makrinatua's approach was what it was, I think, was that they were trying to incorporate an approach that was very inclusive and that it was fun and it had an element of um, bettering young people and giving the control back to young people to direct their own learning. And that wasn't really the modus operandi of the church and their sort of youth organization. So I think automatically some of those organizations like Makaratua became more attractive to young people as a result. And I guess that also then created some tensions around um, how they were organized. Um, so I think, and again, like that happens across quite a wide range of, you know, even the comic book example where you have organizations that are voluntary organizations that are trying to organize to censor more material in Ireland and are very concerned with censorship and circulation of popular culture materials like magazines and comic books and pulp fiction and and romance novels and those kinds of things and then actually the public want more of them the public are like why are you taking away our romance novels and comic books yeah. 
Um, so there is this tension in the 50s between organizations that are trying to really close down and close off um, these, this flow of popular cultural material into Ireland. And really it's, it's kind of a losing battle because again, through the roots of immigration, the networks of immigration, but also just the opening up of the economy um, and uh, the desire really of the, the people themselves to have more access to these material, um, whether that's kind of teenagers wanting comic books or older youths wanting, you know, mag celebrity magazines and those kinds of things. You know, they, there's a drive from the bottom up here to have access to popular culture and also to have access to better standards of living and mm. something more akin to, you know, young people's experiences in, in Europe and in America. And that's the prime places that they're comparing themselves to. So I think that they, you know, there's, it's not linear. So this kind of moves forward and back mm. here in how that actually occurs. And without sort of looking at the subtleties of that, if you were only to look at the political dimension, you would actually miss a lot of that. But there's certainly from the bottom up a real drive towards young people. Right. And young people are a really big part of that, um, changing their access to popular culture and, and also just the standard of living, really, and the lifestyles that and opportunities that are available to them. Right, and perhaps just just one last thing, uh, which okay. I, I just left left off the page for me uh, while I was reading. Um, Ireland's own magazine uh, is is uh, it's one of those magazines that uh, is just uh, very closely linked in in, in mind. I think in general cultural imagination in Ireland with 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 a conservative Catholic Ireland, and uh, you give some uh, instances of. Um, uh, kind of coded discourse in the pen friend advertisements from evidently gay men in the magazine. I so, think so. I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of one of those things where, again, like you said, uh, the, the publication itself is very conservative. It's still going and it's, um, it's not one that raises much controversy. But I was interested mm. in the pen friends section because, again, it's one of these places where teenagers are kind of talking to each other. So they're mm. sending in letters describing themselves, first of all, and then describing the kinds of teenagers that they want to connect with. So mm. I, found, I, was, I was reading them really from that perspective to look at how teenagers describe themselves and how they mm. communicated with other teenagers and, and kind of, you know, as an aspect of teen culture. Um, but it just kept coming up and I kind of felt like I couldn't ignore it, you know, that I was there. Mm. And, and then I was asking myself, was I reading too much into it? But it was there frequently enough, I think, to, to be something that I felt like I had to mention. And really, it seemed to be that there were letters there um, requesting pen friends um, that were male only and they were coming mm. from men. And sometimes like I didn't change the emphasis in the book they were they were in capital letters saying you know men only send photographs you know so it it seemed there was too much of it really for it to be um for it to be there not to be something there so I couldn't within the scope of the book really spend too much more time researching that um but I think there's certainly room to research that further down the line um, because I think there was, it, it raises an interesting question about how, um, you know, people who 
would have been gay in Ireland in that time period would have met other would have met other men and it certainly comes up in popular culture that there's a recognition that gay men did exist in Ireland in the 1950s it's just how they met and communicated with each other is is currently there's not a lot of research in that so again yeah. it was one of those things that I was sort of pointing to I probably can't say much more than that other than that it seems that there was these letters being exchanged within that pen friend um, space, but mm. um, your your examples, I I think it's fair to say, are completely un, un, unambiguous, uh, and uh, it's worth just just reading one or two of these. I think for the listener, uh, because yeah. they're they're fascinating and in in the very playful way in which they're they're written. Uh, so not only are they un, unambiguous to the keen-eyed observers, certainly looking back. From a 21st century perspective, um, but also you know you, you can sense uh, some enjoyment here, uh, uh, and, and, and you know a, a sense of mischief uh, with, with with some of these perhaps. Uh, so here's one: uh, bachelor gay, young man requests letter from others with similar tastes brackets which he does not state, age 20 to 30 years, various interests. Um, uh, will always be true young man, age 25 years, is interested in country life, games and dancing, and he wish, wishes to hear from boys, in capitals, 18 to 25 years. Uh, so it, it's, it's always fascinating when you read historical research and uh, you come across these, these surprises that uh, give you a sense of the inner world of people who uh, perhaps you know, are, 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 are no longer alive, you know, are very, very elderly. And, uh, and it, it, it allows, allows you to kind of make a, make a connection, I, I, I suppose, really, and, and, and to, to kind of see through um, uh, versions of, of, of history that really, that really eclipse or have no interest in the, in the inner world of certain people who are on the margins of, of a society. Um, at a particular time really really yeah and and as well the assumption that you know I mean I think it's it you, we can assume that you know gay men wanted to meet other gay men in that time period and there was probably very limited space for them to do that so mm -hmm. it's interesting as you said I mean it, it isn't subtle it's like you know boys who and the interests of meeting them I won't state I mean it, you know it is it seemed to me when I was reading the pen page that these types of letters were sort of jumping off the page as well um and you know again I can't I guess I don't want to add too much onto it except that this mm. seems to exist because I don't have the evidence to say they were definitely meeting in this way but as a beginning point I think it certainly indicates that there's a lot more work to be done on some mm -hmm. of the smaller histories or if, you know, for want of a better word that maybe aren't part of the political history of a decade or aren't part of a, you know, an economic history of the decade, but are still a really important part of how that decade was experienced by the majority mm -hmm. of people or by mm -hmm. particular groups um, within that society. And I guess, you know, as a way of kind of closing off the conversation, that that was really what I was hoping to do with the book. You mm. know, in some ways it challenges some of the official histories, but I think in a larger way, it sort of adds to or colors in part of that mm. history of that decade that was maybe missing before, that it just expands what we understand about the decade and, mm. and the lived experience of it um, as much as anything else.
Yes, and uh, and and opens up avenues of of research for uh, anybody reading the book. It's it's uh, I certainly found it really enlightening and absolutely engaging, uh, really fascinating, fascinating read. And I would recommend it to anybody listening to to this podcast. A terrific book, and uh, I'd like to thank you for for researching and and, and writing it. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs> I'm glad. It, one of the nicest things about it has actually been getting feedback from the generation that I'm writing about. And, oh, you know, quite a few people have contacted me and said, oh, I remembered so much about going up in that time period and things I'd forgotten myself about being young in the 1950s in Ireland. So that's really been one of the really pleasant. Oh, that's fantastic. Also, that's as great. a researcher, just for someone to confirm that what you wrote was correct and, and accurate, but also that actually, you know, um, that they saw their own experiences reflected there. So that's been one of the nice things about it. So, and thank you for, um, oh, wonderful, for yeah. being part of the podcast today and contributing to it as well. Uh, th- thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. That's, 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 that's great. Uh, it's, always, it's always great to know that academic work um, can, can, can travel beyond the confines of, of the academic world. Um, that's, that's great. And that's, that's, really, that's really nice to know. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.